Well, good morning, everybody. Um, we're missing about, seems like, half our class, but hopefully they'll, they'll roll in. It's good to see you all on a beautiful, little chilly Sunday morning. We are coming to uh, untangle our emotions again this morning, and hopefully we'll begin to have some success as we try to navigate all that's going on within us. Well, let me pray for us as we begin. Gracious Father, we come into your presence thanking you for the beautiful day that you've granted to us and for the joy of the Lord's day, a day of gladness uh, in your truth, a day of fellowship with your people. And Lord, we, we ask the power and presence of your Holy Spirit to be with us, that you would help us as we, re we reflect upon biblical principle, try to discern uh, a way that we could live so as to honor you, Give us understanding of you and understanding of our own hearts, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, last week, uh, John Carmen taught us, and he gave us really these two uh, extremes of how we respond to our emotions, and uh, they were defined as uh, spit it up or suck it up. Uh, if you want an abbreviated version, are you a spewer or a stuffer? Are you a spewer or a stuffer? All of us have tendencies that we do one or the other of these things. We either, you know, let it all hang out. Uh, we spew on others, whatever we feel, uh, we erupt. Or we try to stuff it down, suppress, um, maybe ignore and just move on with life. And both of these are not, they're really not easily definable because they end up moving it one into the other. Uh, because eventually as you're trying to stuff, you're having, you're probably having an emotional response that might be anger or visible distress because you're trying to push it all down and it's bubbling out. And the person who's spewing uh, in order to move on with life might try to stuff. So it's not as simple to define it like that, but these are bad options uh, our authors are relating to us about how we engage with our emotions. So they suggested a better way. And I'm just wondering if you remember uh, what that better way is. Uh, if anyone recalls, what's that? Engage. All right. Somebody was paying attention last week and it stuck with them. Okay, we want to engage. Now, this is a helpful way to reflect on our emotions. And what the author means by this is really a, a threefold activity. What we're going to do is we're going to look. Am I feeling something? And I'm going to kind of take a look within for a moment. Are our feelings arising? I'm kind of feeling off. What's going on? And then once we look, we're going to study what exactly is that thing that I am feeling. I need to reflect upon it a moment. I need to analyze it in light of my relationship to God, my relationship to others, my relationship to myself. And then I need to decide how to respond. I need to decide the direction I need to go. Now, I want to show you a biblical example of this, and I'm going to be bouncing you around Scripture. Uh, one of the difficulties of talking about this very large issue is it's hard as you're, the author's writing this to constantly be engaging with biblical texts all along the way because the book would probably be three times longer. But we get to do that in our reflections together. So turn to Psalm 73. And let me show you a perspective on this of looking, studying, and deciding. Psalm 73, 
I'll remind you of the context, but we're going to focus in on verses 16 and 17. The psalmist is reflecting upon his past uh, in light of his own frustrations. He's a man undergoing suffering. He'll say that uh, in verses 13 and following. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Uh, so he's undergoing some unspecified affliction. It seems to be physical in nature. It's certainly touching his emotions. And the reason he's having this violent response is he looks at himself and all the suffering he's facing, and then he looks at the wicked and he sees they didn't seem like they're suffering at all. They don't have any pangs in their death. Uh, they seem to wear pride like a necklace. They have riches and happiness, apparently. He gives these beautiful descriptions, maybe they're not beautiful, uh, of their figurative descriptions that are striking. Their eye bulges with fatness. Um, everything they see, they're taking it in. They seem to be enjoying it. You know, they're speaking and scoffing and they have malice. And yet they are at peace and their bodies are, are sleek, um, fat and sleek. I don't know how you, you're both fat and sleek. Uh, the idea, of course, is everything about their person seems to manifest a life blessed. Maybe we could think of celebrities. They look a certain way. They appear to us a certain way on the outside as if all is well, but, you know, there's always the behind-the-scenes stories, and we know that that's not really the case. But the psalmist is seeing these people who reject God apparently blessed, seeing himself who claims God apparently crushed, and he wonders what in the world is going on. And then he reflects on this. He looks, he studies he discerns or decides, verse 16, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Now, I think here he's kind of looking and studying and overwhelmed at the moment as to what's going on. But his study moves from just personal reflection to something else. And this will be really be getting ahead to the next chapter. Nevertheless, he says, um, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. When did I get perspective? When I went to corporate worship. And I heard in corporate worship the end of the wicked and the hope of the righteous. So he, he looks within, he sees tumultuous emotions, he's recognizing, I'm feeling all kinds of things, and this is a wonderful display of how emotion, emotions never come to you in single file, is the way the author put it. They come all tangled up. He studied what was going on, but his study wasn't isolated. It, it also led to <clears throat> reflecting in corporate worship. And then he decided how to respond. So this is an example of the kind of thing we're talking about. Now, if you're going to engage like this, if you're going to engage your emotions, if you're not just going to stuff it and say, you know, I'm just going to move on with life, I don't have time to feel, i got too many things to do, and I don't really care how I feel anyway, or you're just going to spew, well, I'm just going to let you have it, and I'm not going to think about whether or not that was a good thing or a bad thing, I'm just going to tell you all about it, and then I'm going to move on with life, versus actually engaging. What is this going to require if you're going to engage? And that's a real question I want you to reflect upon. 
What is it going to require? Okay, it's going to require some self-control uh, so that you don't stuff or spew. Good. Time. I should write these down. Self-control will be required. Honesty will be required. Sometimes that'll, that'll be really difficult. Maybe more on that in a minute. And then what I was hoping you would say for sure is time. Time. When you're stuffing, you're not taking the time to consider what's going on with you, looking within, what am I feeling, why am I feeling it, am I having the right response, studying how does this relate to God, how should I be relating to others, how should I be embracing God's providence, what sins do I need to confess, and then deciding, okay, how do I move forward? You're not doing that. You're just stuffing and moving on. Likewise, when you're spewing, you're just going to, again, let somebody have it. You're going to tell them all about how you feel, and it's going to be unfiltered outburst without reflecting. Is this good or bad? What am I actually feeling? Is, are my feelings related to the way a godly person <coughs> should conduct himself or herself? Or is this a selfish desire? You just kind of let it all hang out. But if you're going to engage, and the assumption here is this is a better way, and I think he's right, the authors, two authors are right to say it's a better way to engage, then it's going to require some time. What would you need to do? Why would it require time? Okay, you're going to have to think, uh, and you're going to have to think in a way that's uninterrupted where you can actually well, you can actually ponder and then in that pondering Alicia's already mouthing what you need to do you need to pray so I want you to think of it this way if you're going to engage two things are going to be required of you that you ponder and that you pray and, and I want to show you I want to show you uh, biblically why this should be the case. And I want you to just take it, take my word for it. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 15. And we're thinking here about pondering. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 15. And we're looking at verse 28. Proverbs 15 verse 28. Josh, would you read that for us? Okay, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. Something has come upon you in your life. It's a good thing, a bad thing, it's really indifferent. Um, it could be one or the other. Something's come into your life. How do I respond to this? A lot of us act as if whatever this person said had no effect upon me and I'm just moving on with life. Some of us immediately have a visceral response and we go after that person, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. But if we're going to engage, we have to take the time to ponder how to respond. Because what does the ungodly or the person not conducting himself in a righteous way do, according to this verse? The mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. So, the author has described for us, there are good negative emotions. We, we think of negative emotions as anger or grief, 
but grief can be good, anger can be good. There are bad positive emotions. You can be excited about all the wrong things. You can be happy or joyful um, for bad reasons, for self-centered reasons. So you could spew a positive emotion that's really a negative concept because it doesn't accord with godly living and therefore be a fool or wicked, acting like a wicked person who's pouring out evil things. A related verse to this uh, would be um, Proverbs fifteen fourteen. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. The one who, who has an understanding heart is seeking knowledge. And that knowledge, we often think, is seeking knowledge of God, seeking knowledge of others, but also seeking knowledge of yourself. Do you, do you know yourself? Uh, as a man thinks, so he is, Proverbs will argue. So are you taking the time to ponder what's going on within you? Lord, I need to know me, what I'm, what I'm feeling and how I'm responding. And I also need to pray, all right? This shouldn't be a hard verse to think. Uh, Psalm 139, you probably know it. You don't have to turn there. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try my anxious thoughts. Why do we need to pray that God would search us? Okay, to remind ourselves that we need to be searched. And then... What is it that God can do in, in, in searching us that we don't seem to be able to do ourselves very well? And I think it has something to do with this. Okay, the Lord can reveal our sin. The Lord, by His Spirit, can convict us of something we didn't realize we were doing. Our hearts are deceitful, Jeremiah seventeen nine. We all feel things that we think, as we look at it and study it, we're justified in feeling. So we need to stop and pray and ask the Lord to search us. Am I deceived in the way that I feel and think that it's okay and therefore I'm responding in this fashion? Am I conducting myself in a way that's honorable or am I aiming just to justify my feelings and to present myself in a self-righteous fashion? Now, I didn't come up with some elaborate story about yeah, how, do, how do we actually do this? But I want you to think about how hard this is to do. Let's just say, in case this has ever happened to you, you ha- you're having an argument with another person. And what do you do? Time out. I need to go engage my feelings. I need to ponder what's <coughs> happening within me. I need to look at it. I need to study it. I need to weigh it in light of God's word. And then I need to decide how I'm going to respond to you. How many of us actually do that? <laughs> um, no, even if you're a stuffer, at that moment, you're probably, you're probably a spewer. You, you sp- you're stuffing some stuff, but you're spewing something because we engage with one another in an argument. This requires an incredible amount of self-control to, uh, again, as the Proverbs will say, even the fool seems to be wise when he is silent. <laughs> um, some words are spoken at you, and you recognize, hopefully, you have enough self-control to recognize, okay, I'm upset by this, but I don't really know why. 
Uh, John Murray, who's a, a famous theologian, taught at Westminster um, Seminary in Philadelphia, wrote a wonderful, wrote a lot of wonderful books, but one that we've studied before, Redemption, Accomplishment, Applied. He was famous for telling people, I'll have to get back to you on that. I mean, this man is brilliant. He probably could give a lot of quick responses, but he, he said this repeatedly. I, I'll have to get back to you on that. It might be frustrating to the person you're talking to, particularly like your spouse, <laughs> if you said, I'm going to have to think about that before I respond to you. But if we want to stop sinning, if we want to not walk down a path of destruction, then we're actually going to have to push pause and consider. Or maybe what we need to do is we had a difficult conversation and we recognize I spewed when I should have stopped. It's too late now. But now I need to go back and reconsider. I need to go back and think. I need to look. I need to study. I need to decide how I'm going to respond. I might need to readdress this matter. And that's what's going on in Psalm 73. The psalmist has already had a bad response. And then he's trying to figure out what to do with it and how he should engage his emotions in light of engaging God. Now, the next chapter is going to be engaging God, and I'm stealing somebody's thunder about that. Are you teaching that? Yeah. That's you? Yeah, okay, that's right. That's right. Thomas has got it. So he's going to talk to you more about that, and I'm, I'm not going to get into the details. But I just want you to note that this is hard, but this is required. If we're really going to untangle our emotions, we have to engage. Now, he's going to mark out for us a path of engaging your emotions in a fourfold fashion, and let me, let me create a little bit more space. So if we're going to deal with our emotions in a way that's God-honoring, there are a handful of things that we've got to do, all of which, again, require some time. The first thing we've got to do is identify. Identify. Now, this is not hard to figure out what he's trying to communicate. I need to recognize... What is this that I'm feeling? Maybe you name it, or maybe you just say something's off <clears throat> with me, and I need to reflect as to what exactly is going on. Now, we see this happen with God's people in the Scriptures, and I'm going to show you uh, three examples where there's an identifying and naming. And because I'm bouncing you around all different places, you don't always have to turn there, but you can chase me if you want. Psalm 13 this is David in the midst of struggle, and I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2. Most likely, these are, this is during the, the Saul attacking David years, and he says this, and tell me what the emotion is, or emotions are. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? What, are the, what is the or are the emotions? Okay, there's certainly desperation. Yeah, how long, how long, how long? Good, what else? Okay, hopelessness or a despair. And I think you see that in verse 2 in particular. Um, how long must I take counsel in my soul, there's a turning inward, and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Christians get depressed too. Famous title by David Murray. 
right here. David has sorrow in his heart all the day, all day long. He's sad. This is a perpetual issue in his heart in light of the circumstances of life. And he's got to figure out what to do with it. So he's identifying, I'm sorrowful, I'm, I'm desperate, uh, I'm longing for deliverance, uh, I feel crushed because he says that, you know, God has forgotten me and my enemies exalted over me. How long is this going to go on? Lots of feelings. Let's look at Jesus. Mark chapter 14 in verse 34. Mark 14, verse 34. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's got Peter, James, and John with him. And we read in verse 33 that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. What's he saying? What are Jesus' emotions in this moment? And don't just say sorrow. I mean, flesh it out. What's he identifying? Jesus is sad. But why? What's going on? Okay, a, a right sense of fear. Yeah, the, the, the verb that's translated in the previous verse about this distress and trouble. Um, distress meaning like a soul-shuddering terror. What's Jesus about to face? The wrath and curse of God Almighty. If that doesn't scare you, something's wrong with you. You're not thinking rightly. Jesus has a better apprehension of what is to come than any of us do, and it's terrifying. It's terrifying. So he, he's distressed. Uh, he's distressed, probably sorrowful, because though he's asked his friends to sit here and pray, he already knows they're not. In the moment when he needs friendship, his humanity craves association. His friends are going to fail him, and he knows that, but it, it burdens him. That, that's a big deal. So he's identifying what's going on with him. Let me give you one more example. Uh, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians, if you want to read of Paul and emotion, 2 Corinthians is a great place to do it. I'll just give you one example there, many. Verse 8 of chapter 1. <clears throat> Paul writes, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Despair. Despair. Um, you know, Paul recognizes in the next, next statement that this was a, to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. But he gets to that next. He, he recognizes and identifies there's a despair of life itself. I think we're going to die. I think this is the end. I think that the enemy is going to triumph in this moment. Uh, what are we to do? There's no hope in us. And God gave it that he might put his trust in the Lord who raises the dead, but in that moment, he's identifying, this is how I feel. This is what's going on within me. So we have to take the time to engage by identifying what our emotions are. What's going on in my soul? I gave you a bunch of sad examples. There could be others. Um, but then secondly, 
We don't just got, you know, name something. We have to actually examine. And in our examination, we go back to earlier chapters in this book where as we look at our emotions, he, he talked about how emotions tell us what we value. Uh, Mark Harrington, Pastor Mark, last Lord's Day evening, he's not reading this book with us, but he, he talked to us about this very concept. Like, you know what's important to you based on your emotions. And a lot of us have things that are more important to us than the things of the Lord, and that's why we get so upset when our little treasure is taken away or threatened. Uh, what am I valuing? What's going on in my heart? What are my emotions motivating me to do? What, what action do my emotions want me to take? Is that a right action? So I'm examining this. Let me give you a, a wonderful example of this that's good and bad. We begin with the bad. 1 Samuel 25. 1 Samuel 25. So David has been anointed as king, but he's not king. <clears throat> he serves Saul for a season. Uh, and then Saul, in his jealousy, you know, starts throwing spears at David. David recognizes, I'm, I'm going to die if I stay here. He's on the run, and he spends many days on the run, moving from the land of the Philistines to the land of Moab to the wilderness in Judah. And all the while, Saul is hunting him. Well, David happens to be uh, out among, you know, the caves. And in chapter 24, Saul and his party came looking for David. And Saul entered into a certain cave, unbeknownst to Saul. David and his guys were in the back of that cave. It must have been a big cave. And Saul is relieving himself. And David sneaks up behind him and cuts off the edge of his cloak uh, and then feels convicted that he shouldn't have done that. All the guys are encouraging David to kill Saul. But he has a great moment of self-control. He doesn't reach out his hand against the Lord's anointed. But then we come to chapter 25. David is in, you know, the area of Judah. And David has been basically a wall of protection with his guys around the shepherds of a man named Nabal. And David decides, look, I've been giving you free military protection. <laughs> no predators have come and eaten any of your sheep. Uh, I've guarded you and I'm in need. So I'm going to send a, a group of my guys to go and tell Nabal, hey, here's what we've done for you. Would you be willing to supply us uh, some of our needs in light of this stuff we've done on your behalf? Well, here's how that goes down. If you uh, look in verse 9, <clears throat> 1 Samuel 25, When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take, notice the personal pronouns here, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? What do you think Nabal's thinking about? Himself. So David's young men turned away and came back and told uh, David all this. And Dave, David said to his men, note the word that gets repeated here. Every man strapped on his sword and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword and about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. What's the emphasis? 
What word is being repeated? Sword. Three times. What do you think they're going to do? David has shown incredible restraint with Saul. He has no restraint with Nabal. David, this often happens to us in our emotions. We have been aiming to be godly, restraining ourselves, exercising self-control in this situation over here. And then something comes from over here, and we just blow up. That's David here. So David's men are marching, and they are planning to slaughter them. They're going to kill every male. Well, it just so happens that a wise woman named Abigail hears of the way that her foolish husband spoke and recognized we're, we're in trouble. Uh, so she plans to go out and meet David, and she takes gifts to him uh, to calm uh, his anger. And in this scene here, she, uh, she gets off of her animal, she bows before him, she says, you know, my, my Lord, uh, I'm your servant. She uses that language like 15 times, she keeps saying it. She's in a posture of submission, she's not, you know, who do you think you are, and none of that stuff. She comes to confront him, but then she says, you know, the guilt should be upon me. And then pick up in verse 26. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek you to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the response of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when, my, when the Lord has done this for my Lord, according to all the good he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause for my Lord working salvation himself. What is Abigail doing? In a very nice way. She's confronting him. And she's telling him, if you do this, you're about to have blood guilt on your hands. If you do this when you become king, this is going to cripple your conscience. You are acting in a way that's inconsistent with your calling. You're called to be king. God is going to give you the kingdom. His word is not going to fail. But when you get there, you want to make sure you didn't achieve salvation yourself, that you trusted the Lord. But she's saying all that in a way that's incredibly cunning to appeal to him. And in that moment... What, what does David do? Well, I won't read you the rest of the chapter, but David recognizes that she speaks the truth. That he didn't take the time to engage. He just flew off the handle. But she helped him examine what he was feeling. Now, this is a, the reason I chose this passage to look at is because I think it's a wonderful example of what we might call an inferior in the relationship. David is the king elect. He's the anointed king, not king yet. And in this culture in particular, a woman dare not challenge the authority. But she does. And David takes it. And David recognizes 
that this woman was God's provision for me to challenge my wrong thinking and to help me do what is right. Husbands in the room, when your wives step to challenge your thought process in a not demeaning, dishonoring way, but a respectful way, but when they challenge your thought process, you're to receive that as a gift from God. This is the Lord's protection of you. And sometimes, if we're all honest, we have to have somebody's help to examine our emotions. Do you know that about yourself? That you, you lack the ability because of your own deceitful heart to truly examine your emotions? That it might be you need a wise counselor? Hopefully you live with a wise counselor. Um, but it might be God is giving you a wise counselor to help you in this arena. And that's what we got going on here. And David is thankful. And he's so thankful that when Nabal gets struck dead 10 days later, David goes back and he gets this woman and says, yeah, I want a woman like that to be my wife. Okay. Identify, oh, Randy, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Something else is inevitably going to come up. And I think that, yeah, we are not ignorant of the devil's schemes. This is how the devil works. The devil wants all your focus occupied over here, and he's going to come from the other angle. Um, he, he is a warrior. He's strategizing. He's planning. He's cunning. He's able, you know, he's working to come at you from all directions. So as your defenses are down or you're not expecting this attack, and he's going to bring it. Yeah, so you should expect when there's a real tense situation over here and your energy is focused, he's going to bring something else to assault you. That's how he works. Yeah, very helpful. All right, identify, examine. How much time we got left? Not much. Uh, evaluate. Evaluate. Here we are considering, okay, I'm, I'm examining, I've, I've named, I'm off, something's wrong. Maybe I'm figuring out what, what the emotion is. I'm examining that emotion. Is this emotion, uh, what are the details of this emotion? What am I feeling? What is this emotion wanting me to do? What am I valuing? And then I begin to evaluate, okay, is this actually good or bad? Is it moving me in a way to honor the Lord? Or is it moving me in a way that would dishonor the Lord? I'll try to give you two quick examples because of time, I'll just try to summarize. Jonah chapter 4. Jonah has preached to the Ninevites. Jonah has gone and taken his perch to overlook the city, waiting for God to kill them all, because he hates the Ninevites. And the Lord confronts Jonah. Um, he does, Jonah doesn't like the fact that God is going to be gracious to these people. And Jonah, as he's sitting outside the city, the Lord confronts him and says, do you do well to be angry? And there's no response. Jonah then went out of the city and sat east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade 
till he could see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But then what happens? Well, dawn came up the next day and God appointed a worm to attack the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. <laughs> You've noticed that part of the story. Um, and he said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Now look at what the Lord is doing. He's asking a question to force Jonah to evaluate his emotions. Is what you're feeling, your anger, justified or is it not? Do you do well to be angry of the plant? How does Jonah respond? Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Okay, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> um, the Lord is inviting an evaluation of his emotions. And Jonah is looking within, and he thinks his emotion is justified. And then the Lord will come with a rebuke. Um, you know, you, you have pity for the plant, which you didn't labor for, you didn't make it grow. It came up in a night, it perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, this great city, where there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left, and also much cattle? I always love the end of that. God cares about animals too, right? Um, you care about something that gave you protection for a day. Should I care about people I made? Uh, so again, it's inviting another emotional evaluation. Uh, what's going on in your soul? That would be a negative example. Uh, Philippians 1 would be a positive example. The Apostle Paul is writing uh, to the Philippians from uh, Roman prison, and he's talking about the various struggles that these people are facing. <clears throat> but at the very outset of the letter, he tells them the following in verses 7 and 8. He says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my defense and in the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul has feelings for the Philippians. He's evaluated his feelings and said, It's right that I feel this way about you, that I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus, that I care for you with the very love of Christ. So we have a negative example and a positive example. But you see this examination taking place. And then finally, we get to actually acting. We have identified, I'm feeling something, we've examined what is this motivating me to do, uh, what all is going on, what do I value. We've evaluated it in light of scriptural principle. Is this a good emotion? Is it a bad emotion? <clears throat> or is the action, the emotions leading me to do a, an evil thing or a, a God-honoring thing? And then having evaluated, we actually move to act. <clears throat> now, Philippians chapter 1, I'll give you one final example to wrap things up. The Apostle Paul in Philippians is describing people causing him distress. He's in prison, and they're saying about him, Paul is useless. He is in prison. He cannot cause the gospel to prosper in this current state. He's not a good model here. And they're attacking him. 
And Paul knows that these people, while they're preaching the gospel, are motivated with selfish ambition and a spirit of rivalry. They're trying to one-up Paul. And yet, how does Paul act in the situation? He says this, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not, uh, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. They're like jabbing Paul while they're preaching the gospel. What then? How do I act? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. He's being attacked. How does he choose to respond? Well, the gospel is being proclaimed, even by these men giving me a hard time. So I can rejoice in that. So he acts with joy. And if you had to pin down off the cuff what a theme of Philippians is, what have you learned it is? It's joy. He just keeps rejoicing. And this is related to Philippians chapter 4, where Paul describes that he's learned to be content in any of his circumstances. Now, that tells you that Paul didn't always have a good response. He had to learn contentment. And then out of that state of learning, he had to take a particular action. This is a path for us to engage our emotions. Now, this doesn't solve all the problems. This doesn't tell us really what do we do with our feelings because the ultimate thing in this unfolding of the book is is your action God honoring or dishonoring to the Lord and the author will actually say uh, he writes that changing your feelings is not your biggest goal it is a goal but you want to make sure that whatever you're feeling, you have evaluated it, restrained yourself so that you act a certain way. And then, of course, you would have to back up and deal with how you feel. But this is a really helpful way for us to try to discern what's happening within our hearts and move in a right direction. And again, segueing to the next chapter, if you're going to engage your emotions, then you're going to engage with God. And that's a really, really important piece. But Thomas will tell you all about that uh, next week, Lord willing. Well, any thoughts or questions as we wrap things up? Yeah. Right. We we can do what Nehemiah does when the king notices that he's sad, and he immediately prays like an, a shot arrow prayer. We should learn to do that in the midst of our difficult conversations with people when we're struggling. Lord, give me wisdom to know how to speak. <laughs> and maybe just that pause will be enough for some self evaluation. I mean, we can't always say, you know, I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> Sometimes we actually have to do something. But yeah, very, very helpful. And act, I think, can respond word and deed. Yes, yes. And then act can be the change of thinking. It can be. Yeah, yeah. Not just what we do, but as a, as a, and, and how we think. And how we think. 
Yeah, again, we want a whole heart that's living into the glory of the Lord, and the heart isn't just the will. The heart is the mind, the heart is the conscience, the heart is the affections, and the will. So the whole being of the heart needs to be engaged. Uh, his focus here was only on what we're going to do, but we, we, again, we have to back up and examine how, how we feel. And if we're honest, again, a lot of us feel things that just aren't reality, and we, we have to teach, we have to tell our feelings the truth. Kelly? Yeah. It's not the lack of positive. What's the issue at that point? There's something else. So then it's that continuous like reignite the resurrection. Yeah. Like I'm really good job at resurrecting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's only because the flat tire is what gets me. <laughs> right. You know, but it's not the flat tire that's the issue. And so that continuous process of feeling something and then The plan, yeah. No, no, it was something much bigger. Right, right. And often that's, you know, you're, you're so default in this top thing that having to have an engaged or continuous resurrection is not. Yeah, yeah. And somebody can be a spewer because they're on a slope, they're on a low boil all the time. Yeah. <clears throat> and they don't even know why. They haven't taken the time to consider. Well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've made us emotional beings. And we thank you that our Lord Jesus models for us emotions that are pleasing to you. <clears throat> Lord, we pray that we would learn to engage our own hearts because you tell us, Lord, that we are to guard our hearts because from it flow the wellspring of life. Would you help us engage in this process and to take the time needed to ponder? And we pray for your help in discerning right action and right feeling. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.